She's got a gold leather coat. She's got sequins. She's got bibs with her name embroidered on it. There's Who a cherry could this also. woman be her talking about? Cher? Joan right Rivers? Ivana Trump? Nope. That's a beautiful piece. Guess Real again. Big. There's a cherry pop doll. This is cherry pop's face in a ring, in a pinky ring. This is cherry pop's face. It has cognac diamonds in it. And that's a bracelet. That's a bracelet. Then I have, oh, I have another big around a medallion of my Mercedes car, and Cherry Pop is in the middle. And just who is this indulged creature called Cherry Pop? If you turn off the radio now, you'll never know. Don't touch that dial. Welcome to ReSound, the show that brings you audio stories from around the world, curated by the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Tonight we bring you an award-winning story of a daughter's search into her mother's past in May May, a daughter's song. Then, post-traumatic stress disorder, tracing the origin of the disorder, not the stress. And lastly, the inimitable Joe Frank with his short, dark, hilarious work, Sweepstakes Winner. So come, take a break, take a ride, take a listen. Anyone who thinks relationships are easy clearly never had one. Our first story tonight explores the stormy and symbiotic relationship between a public radio producer, Dime Roberts, and her Taiwanese mother, Chu Yin. Their story is one of cross-cultural, intergenerational short-circuiting. Mei Mei, a daughter's song, first aired on NPR in 1989 and went on to win a Peabody Award in 1990. In a previous interview with the Third Coast Festival, Dime said that the piece is not a tribute to her mother, but more about a misunderstanding, a rift that dominated her life for the first 30 years. Dime also said that this story doesn't represent where she and her mother ended up, only where they started. Let's listen to May May, a daughter's song by Dime Roberts. Just remember, this isn't about me. It's about my mother. About growing up with her. Just remember that. Wait a sec, mother. Mother and I took a trip to Taiwan together, my birthplace and hers. I thought it would make us closer, help me to understand her better. But the fights got bigger, more intense, and now we don't speak to each other. I don't know when I started calling her mother. It was a conscious decision, though, to go from mama, what all Asian daughters called their mothers, to the more formal mother. I guess, <laughs> no, I know I was ashamed of her. The way she embarrassed me in public, calling out my name from the other end of a Kmart store, yelling at the top of her lungs. Everyone in Taiwan yells. I understand that, at least now. Other mothers were reserved, educated, went to PTA meetings, baked cookies. I pronounced fork, hork, because my mother couldn't say Fs very well. English wasn't my first language, but then I forgot my first language. My mother never read to me because she didn't know how to read or write. I was different, half Taiwanese. It was always an isolating thing to tell my friends. Stranger than all the fairy tales other mothers told their kids. 
A story. There once was a girl who lived in a poor village during a time of drought. One day, while gathering bundles of sticks for firewood, she heard someone singing high in the mountains. She followed the sound and discovered a beautiful woman singing near the edge of a lake. "I am the daughter of the Dragon King," she said. The peasant girl sat beside the young singer and talked of her village and its need for water. My father keeps the key to the gates of this lake. If you sing with me, perhaps then the gates might open. Taiwanese Mei Mei means little sister. It's a term of endearment for any little girl. But there are no pictures of my mother as a little girl. No baby pictures. No pictures at all until she was grown up. She was born in 1932, right before World War II. Sold by her own parents, not just once but twice, to work for other people. Her step parents, she called them. How long ago was it? Last time you were in Taiwan. I told you 25 years. Well, you want to repeat? Try to pretend you haven't told me anything, okay? Just try to pretend that. It'll make it a lot easier. So how come they sold you? I don't know. I find out. I scared it say because they, they can, they cannot take care of me. Was it really sold or was it just adopting? They say they sold. For how much? Plus Japanese and twenty yen. Twenty yen. I don't know. They need the money. How did you feel? I don't have any fear. You don't. Mm-mm. I don't have a fear. I don't have any feelings. Because I don't care. I don't care. Nothing I can do. About There's nothing I can do about it. I'm the only human being on this earth who understands everything my mother says in English. The subtleties, the undertones, the quotation marks that underlie her words. People may get every other word, but I hear everything. They may think she's cute when she's angry, sweet when she's manipulative, simple when she is truly devastated. But I understand everything, the words that is. Why are your fingers so crooked? Your fingers so crooked. I asked that once. Her hands are strong and beautiful with long fingernails, but she can never completely straighten her fingers. Li Jingtao, Jianli Wan. My real parents sold me. They were poor. I was two years old in Chinese age, one year old in American time. I was sold twice. Twice I was sold. The first parents were not unkind, were not loving, were not unkind. Again, I was sold. Xinbua in Taiwanese, Xinbua, adopted daughter-in-law, sold to marry the son in the family. I was twelve, Xinbua. They sold her. She's never felt secure, never loved, never happy. She could never show love the way I saw on TV with American families, with words, with physical affection. 
The only thing I ever wanted to hear from her was, Honey, you're beautiful, and I'm proud of you. I never heard those words. No one said those words to her when she was growing up. Of course, I can never say those words to her. And I can never show love in the ways that matter to her. With a sense of devotion. To act as the dutiful Taiwanese daughter. That was not part of me. She beat me. If the clothes were not clean, she beat me. Steal chopsticks, a bunch of chopsticks. She put my hand in between and squeezed and squeezed. My fingers, why are my fingers so crooked? I don't have a fear. Just I don't care. Nothing I can do about it. Mimi, it's not your time yet. Not your time. Mimi. When I was growing up, I used to listen. Well, actually, I used to not listen to my mother's Taiwanese opera records. The noise filled the house. It was an embarrassing sound for me, especially when she sang along. The banging of gongs, clanging of instruments, really irritated me. Quang quang. That's what Daddy called it. Quang quang. I used to think it was a Taiwanese word for opera, but it means loud noises, disruptions, loud noises. There was always a sound of battles in our house. The clash of cultures between my Taiwanese mother and my Oklahoma country boy father was not quiet. Later, my mother and I would clash, would fight. We talk the Chinese, you don't, you don't understand. Talk the Taiwanese, you don't understand. And I came to understand that the clanging of the opera was not just clanging. It was the sound of battle. A call for warriors to come to the fight. Buddha always take me to heaven, and I see that it's different people over there. No house, I don't see any tree, except, you know, like the sky, beautiful, different. But you don't see four either. It's like you stand up there, they don't fall, they just look like all smoky, you know, and all different color people. I didn't want to come by, but she said, you should come by. You're not time yet. I'm not going to be able to do it. She used to talk about Buddha, 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 the Lady Buddha, 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 the Lady Buddha. Her name was Guanin Posa. She sounded beautiful, with long hair piled up high, dressed in white, the Lady Buddha. She sounded beautiful. There was war. She beat me with a bamboo stick. My mother, my older brother, 
I carried wood in bundles on my back. I washed clothes. I cooked. I scrubbed the floors. I kept the fire burning inside the house. There was war. Did you see any bodies? You always see somebody hanging on on my head on on a telephone or you always? Yeah, you always see somebody hanging on on my head on on a telephone or hanging day hang head hang arm hang arm hang day hang head. They got machine gun. They got a fifty kilo bomb. I think B twenty five, B twenty nine always get to get one's missing gun, one's a fifty kilo bomb. She made me eat everything on my plate, whether I liked it or not, whether I was hungry or not. If I refused, she told war stories. How when she was ten years old, she had to wash the maggots away from the rice before cooking it. That really made me want to eat my dinner. When it was bad, when it was bad, we ran to the mountains, ran to hide. So little food, I ate so little. I ate after they ate rice, some vegetables, no meat. When the food was gone, we came down from the mountains to get more food. I remember planes shooting at us. The American planes would shoot at the Japanese. Would shoot at us as we ran, shooting at us. There was a rich family, she said, who had a bomb shelter underground. She begged them to let her in. Only room for us. I hit my hands against the door. A plane, B twenty nine, B twenty five, B twenty nine. I ran. Behind me, an explosion. The family's shelter. I wouldn't look. I didn't look. I knew. I had seen arms and legs hanging before, on telephone wires, on electric poles. I had seen pieces of bodies before. I knew. I ran. Buddha gave me power. That's the whole name, Guan Yin Posa. We talk the Chinese, you don't, you don't understand. Talk the Taiwan, you don't understand. It's, it's, it's called Miao Xian Gong Zi. You want to stay Miao Xian Gong Zi? No, but you can tell me about it. We talk the Chinese, you don't, you don't understand. Talk the Taiwan, you don't understand. I was hanging, and Buddha stopped me. Buddha gave me power. She said, "It's not your time yet." I was thirteen and fourteen. I tried a suicide three times. How? Tried to hang yourself. You tried to hang yourself? Yeah. Three times? Yeah. How come? 
Because I didn't want to live. That's why I come. I don't think it is happy to live or no. No, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing to do. To the Buddha has to come stop me. So Buddha gave me power. How did she stop you? I don't know how to explain it. He come down here. But did you actually tie a rope up? Yeah. My Buddha come down turn me loose. You were hanging? Yeah. And she turned you loose? Why he come down stop me? Did she say anything or do anything? Yeah. What'd she say? Tell me I'm down gonna be well, I got a long way to go. That's why I got power from Buddha. Guan Yim Hato. The first time I tried to kill myself, I was 13 years old. I tied a sheet to the ceiling in a circle. I put my head in a circle. I was hanging and Buddha stopped me. I was hanging and Buddha stopped me. Buddha gave me power. She said, it's not your time yet. But my life was terrible. I tried to hang myself three times and each time Buddha stopped me. Then I would fall asleep and dream of her. Guan Yin Poset. 一共对我来，一共对我来，妹妹，对我来，妹妹。So beautiful, so beautiful. 一共对我来，妹妹。叫你睡，叫你睡，叫你睡，叫你睡。She took me to heaven. I flew up and up. My feet never touched the ground. Her feet never touched the ground, and I saw heaven. So beautiful, so beautiful, so beautiful. All different colors of people. No houses, no trees, just beautiful clouds. I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go back. But she said I had to. I didn't want to go back. But she said it wasn't my time yet. Run, stop, run away, talk, stop, run away, alone. So how does Buddha talk to you? Every time I sleep, he has dreaming, taking me someplace, teach me how to fly. Did she say anything or do anything? Yeah. What'd she say? Tell me, I'm gonna be. I got a long way to go. That's why I got power from Buddha. Guan Yin Hato. Run, 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 run away, run alone. After the war in 1945, there was even more poverty, even less food. Girls then just didn't leave their families, but she did. I had to admire her guts. I remember a fiery young woman when I was five who once disrupted a whole Taiwanese police station because someone stole our suitcases. God, the way she fought! People were hanging out the window to watch my mother fighting the police. Later on, I adopted that fierceness when we fought together. Yet I protected her from the people who didn't understand her, made fun of her accent. Tried to treat her as a simple child, which she was not. I had, and still have, 
this fierce loyalty to my mama. Fifteen years old, I could not feel hate, could not feel hurt, could not feel run away, must run away. 逃走，一定要逃走。They wanted to send me away to be a prostitute. I never went to school. Always work, work. Always must work. Never learned to speak Chinese, to read and write. Once I was sick with malaria from a mosquito bite. Sick, so sick, I nearly died. Sick, so sick, but they would not spend money for a doctor. Run, 走，run, 走， run, 逃走， run away, alone. In Taiwan, cemeteries are built on hills, and from a distance, the tombstones resemble eyes and mouths—doorways from this world into the underworld. Pass the cemetery, midnight. I see the young, don't see the girl face, but the hair of a real long. Sit on top the stone. They don't want you see. You shouldn't go to see. It 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 kill you. You never know. 千万唔当叫了的鬼呀 ！Night time, there are ghosts at night time. I walk six hours in the dark, no lights. I'm sure. You must not bother ghosts in the night time. If you see a woman weeping in a cemetery, a beautiful woman with long black hair that falls to the ground, do not bother her. She is a ghost. If she turns to look at you, her tongue will roll down from her mouth. You will die in fear. Do not bother a ghost. 千万唔通去叫了的鬼啊I started doing housework when I was seven years old. I cooked and did dishes. I wasn't careful, so I broke things. Mother screamed at me in Taiwanese, then in English, spanked me, scared me. These are times I truly thought she was insane. She's the only person who could totally incense me. As a teenager, I remember her screaming at me about something, and I was washing a knife, and for a minute. I imagined, but I stopped myself.、It、scared me that I'd even thought such a thing. Maybe Buddha was there for her that night too. Later, I learned that her outbursts were the result of not being able to communicate her frustration in this foreign language, this foreign country, hoping to live the rich American life. She would always have to work, still works, and she wanted a daughter who would be her partner, who would help her run. That Chinese restaurant of her dreams, someone who could read and write, who could keep the books, who could speak and be taken seriously, and that was never me. 
The lady looked at me. She asked if I would work for her as a housemaid. If I would work, she would pay me. She would pay my train ticket to Taipei. She would pay me. What can you do to earn money? What about you? Can you do? Buddha was there that night. Buddha. The woman paid my train ticket, and I went away with her. Buddha was there with me that night. She said, "Mimi." It's not your time yet, Mimi. Your time yet. Well, I know Abula take me heaven. I didn't want to come by. She told me, "It's not my time yet. If my time come, that's my home." A story. So the two girls sang together at the edge of the great mountain lake. The Dragon King's daughter and the peasant girl from the village. The music was so lovely. The gates to the lake opened, slowly releasing the much-needed water to the villagers. The two girls looked at one another and laughed. They had saved the village, but they had also become friends. Uh, I didn't know my mother didn't care for me. You must hate her. I don't hate her. I don't hate her. I can't talk to her. I'll never understand her. The love is there because it has to be. She's my mother. I wish. What? <laughs> That she had been happy growing up. So somehow she didn't pass on her desperation, her sadness, her legacy to her selfish American daughter. I wish. Maybe then we might have been friends. The one time we laughed together the hardest on our trip to Taiwan, I had to tell the upstairs neighbors to be quiet. So I spoke in a combination of broken Chinese and sound effects. Yeah, what am I supposed to say? Yeah, I think you're crazy. I mean, you know, I don't know. I know he's saying, "Who's out there?" Washers, washers. She thought it was the funniest thing she ever heard. The laughter lasted longer than any bad memory I ever held on to. Mei Mei, a daughter's song. 
was produced, narrated, and designed by Dime Roberts. The engineer and music composer was Dave Patchkey, with additional music by Trey Gunn and songs by the Rongxing Children's Choir. Funding was provided by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Oregon Arts Commission, and Soundprint. After this break, we're going to return to Di Mei and Chu Yin with another story that was produced after Chu Yin's death. It's an epilogue of sorts and gives us a real sense of how their relationship grew closer over time. Stay with us. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. A minute ago, we heard about the complex relationship between public radio producer Di Mei Roberts and her Taiwanese mother Chu Yin in the story Mei Mei, a daughter song. In a prior interview with the Third Coast Festival, Di Mei told us that at first her mother hated this program because she thought Di Mei was airing dirty laundry. But in the end, at least as it seemed to Dimei, this production helped Chu Yin see things from Dimei's perspective. Dimei produced two more stories about her mother in the subsequent years, but it was after her mother's death that Dimei put together this epilogue to their long and complicated relationship. It is called Messages. My story has been intrinsically linked to my mom's story, a World War II Taiwanese woman who never had a childhood because she was sold as a baby to be a servant to other people. Her adopted stepparents. The short story is she suffered childhood abuse, met my father, left Taiwan, and had two children, my brother and me. She worked as a mill worker, had her husband die, and then when she retired, got breast cancer. The longer story is that she, who needed a parent so badly, got me to take care of her the last three years of her life as she fought this disease. Three or four days out of the week, I lived in Eugene at my mom's home, two hours away from Portland. My brother Kirby lived with her as the live-in caretaker. I was the traveling one, arranging, keeping track through phone messages when I wasn't there. Baby, are you home? With your mother, I want to know how how you feeling. Bye. She didn't like leaving messages. Even sweet messages sounded angry. Baby, thank you, mother. Happy birthday. In the last three years, she got better at the sweetness thing. Baby. And then she got sick twice. She went into the hospital. The first time, I flew to Taiwan, where she was visiting relatives, and I brought her home. We thought she had a lung infection. And then six months later, we discovered the reason she was still coughing was because she had breast cancer that spread to her lungs. We tried chemo, and one treatment centered the hospital again. This time with pneumonia. My brother, who also hated the phone, had to call me to come to the hospital. Message marked urgent. Hello, there is Kirby. She didn't quite get all the fluid out of her lungs or something. I asked the nurse, and it's still got a 108 degree temperature for some reason. It's a little better than yesterday. I hope to hear from you soon. Bye. It's hard to understand my brother, even when he's not upset. Meanwhile, my mom got worse the second time at the hospital, and decided to go home to die. She went on hospice and got a nice nursing aide, Linda, who became our friend. Hi, Dene. This is Linda, and I'm over at your mom's, and I just want to let you know everything's fine and um, looking good. Every she's looking really healthy, better. <laughs> Ma got better, 
and graduated from hospice after six months. A miracle. Had a good breakfast, and um, what more can I say? Everything's going well. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. The only thing that gave away her health was her cough. Baby, your mother, how come you go to that? Are you home? We got in a routine of me visiting her every five days to spend three days at a time with her to relieve my brother who lived with her. Then she started fading again, went on hospice, and just got worse. Baby, this is your mother. Are you home? It's weird how you get used to the progression of an illness. She couldn't eat, went down to 80 pounds, lost her voice. I had to bend down to her lips to understand what she was saying. You beat yourself up wondering if there was something you could have done or... Why didn't you spend more time with her? At the end, we got closer than I ever thought possible. I began to call her Mommy, not Mother, not Ma. She liked that. We watched videos on her bed and tried to talk. At the end, she didn't go easy. But my brother and I were there at her bedside with her friends. Next message. Sent Friday, May 3rd. Hi, D-May. It's Elaine. I just looked at the email from you regarding your mom passing away. I'm glad that you and your brother were there by her bedside. And I'm sending lots of good prayers and thoughts towards you and your family. I love you. Even after living with impending death for nearly three years, it's still a shock when it comes. I remember one of the nice messages when I was sick with a cold, and she called me with a mother's worry. Debbie, it's your mother. I wonder if you feel better or you feel good. Let me know. Bye. I'm okay some days, not okay on others. Death is still the short story. The long story is how we live with it, endure it, remember it, and then let go of the pain so we can live again. We interred Mommy's ashes at the Kuan Yin Temple. I take comfort in the Buddha saying, Life is suffering, and the key to happiness is that there is nothing to attain in life. Yeah. Let go of the wants and needs and regrets and learn to be happy. But I'm going to remember. We will always remember. Debbie, it's your mother. End of message. That was Messages by D. May Roberts. If you want to hear this again or other work from D. May, visit storiesfirst.org. That's S-T-O-R-I-E-S, the number one, S-T, dot com. Coming up, how a disorder got its name, rank, and serial number. But first, a little break from words, music. This is Bola Soup. You're listening to ReSound.
Music from Bola Soup. Welcome back to ReSound, a brand new show on Chicago Public Radio curated by the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week we bring you audio stories from around the world, narratives, features, documentaries, soundscapes, and more, and neatly package them for you in a one-hour show on Sunday nights. We do all the work, you sit back and relax. The Vietnam War brought a lot of painful realities into the American household, one of which was the psychological aftermath of the trauma of war. Reporter Elise Spiegel looked at the history of one syndrome that's become part of the post-war vernacular, even though it wasn't officially recognized until five years after the war ended. This is post-traumatic stress disorder, which originally aired in 2003 on All Things Considered. In 1991, after a day of intense battle in Kuwait, Gulf veteran Kevin Knight stepped out of his Humvee into the desert sand. And I took several steps, and I happened to look down at the ground. And there on the ground was a small baby tennis shoe with a foot in it. At the time, Knight didn't think much of it. He was a soldier. He'd seen death before. But when Knight got back to the States, that one image, the image of a severed foot in a miniature tennis shoe, kept coming back to him. He'd be playing cards, fixing his car, sitting at work. Then all of a sudden I'd just kind of day, start daydreaming and, and I'd start thinking about that that incident. And uh, I thought about that continually, uh, and, and it's a reoccurring dream every night. Kevin thought about the shoe so constantly he couldn't concentrate. He lost his job. Then he went to a psychiatrist at the Veterans Affairs Hospital who told him he had post-traumatic stress disorder. He went into therapy, and the image began to fade. A modest success story. But had this happened during the Vietnam War, Knight probably wouldn't have been treated at all. You see, post-traumatic stress disorder didn't exist. When Jack Smith returned from Vietnam in 1969, there was no tidy label for the feelings that were troubling him. Somebody would express an opinion that I realized was ill-formed, and I, I would be so angry physically, I used to punch out windows with my fist because I didn't want to touch anyone. But physically, I had to act out that anger. Smith didn't talk about Vietnam for years, didn't want to think about it. Then in the fall of 1970, he was invited to an informal meeting in New York City. A small group of vets thought they'd get together, talk about their feelings. The men had never heard of war neurosis or encountered the idea that intense stress might have lasting effects. All they knew was that they were paralyzed by anger, that they woke up screaming. We're talking a mile a minute and jumping on each other's stories and we suddenly realized we all had similar kinds of experiences and were having the same kinds of problems. And we said, what is going on? After six hours of talk, the vets decided to meet again. They also decided to invite two well-known psychiatrists to participate, Robert J. Lifton and High Shatton. Of course, when Lifton and Shatton first agreed to attend the meetings, they didn't anticipate defining a whole new diagnosis. They were simply there to listen. Shatton is deceased now, but here's Robert Lifton. They started out being very intense renditions of what these men had been through. Jack Smith. All the anger, anguish, pain. They had to say in some way to this group what they had experienced. And there were these shrinks in the room. Bob Lifton and High Shatton were sitting in the room, and their eyes are wide as saucers. And we were stunned by what we heard. We heard about things we had never known of, certainly never experienced. 
While the idea of shell shock and battle fatigue had been discussed in psychiatry for years, few psychiatrists had direct experience with people suffering from war trauma. In fact, in the late 60s, the diagnostic category of war neurosis had been removed from the American Psychiatric Association's official listing of mental diseases, a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. There was no official label, and without an official label, there was no official treatment. To the psychiatric community, psychological damage from war didn't exist. The vets probably should have been bothered by this, but they weren't. They didn't understand the power of labels. We could care less. I mean, at that point, we could care less about labels. It was probably two years before we even put a label on it. And we began calling it post-Vietnam syndrome. I mean, amongst ourselves, that's what we called it. Finding this name turned out to be crucial. In 1972, Hai Shatton, one of the psychiatrists in the group, published a piece in the New York Times about post-Vietnam syndrome, the first public articulation of the problem. This article attracted a storm of attention, including attention from the Veterans Administration, the agency responsible for veteran health care, which was opposed to any official recognition of a diagnosis. Jack Smith. Part of the motivation at the VA was the argument that if we recognize this, we got hundreds of thousands of Vietnam veterans, these guys are going to be applying for compensation. Do you know what's going to cost the government? Art Blank is a psychiatrist who worked at a VA hospital during the early 70s. I actually heard psychiatrists and others say that this was going to bankrupt the United States Treasury. But it wasn't just about the money. The VA also objected on scientific grounds. Mental health at the time was really dominated by psychoanalysis, which believed that childhood trauma alone caused emotional problems in adult life. According to this logic, if a soldier emerged from war with psychological disabilities, it was because he was a bad apple and poor parenting was to blame. As a result, many of the veterans who checked themselves into VA hospitals were misdiagnosed as schizophrenics or psychotics. Again, Art Blank. We all have many horror stories, by the way, clinical horror stories from the 1970s about Vietnam veterans. A great many things happened that should never have happened. People were misdiagnosed, treated with shock treatment. There were some patients who killed themselves. One of the vets who was misdiagnosed was a guy Jack Smith knew, named Paul Kershaw. He had been at the VA hospital, and he had had shock treatment. They had given him major tranquilizers in terms of meds. It hadn't done anything for him, but he began talking with some of the guys who were in the rap groups, and we began, you know, informally, we'd see him at the office, he'd come around and we'd talk with him and realize that he was one of us. And then, right before Christmas, three or four weeks after he'd gotten discharged from the hospital, had come to see us, he drove his car head-on into a pig iron truck and killed himself. It was around this time that Jack Smith became frustrated. A number of people had been collecting data on Vietnam vets in order to build their case to the VA that post-Vietnam syndrome actually existed. So when the head of the VA, Richard Radebush, was quoted as saying that there was nothing unique about Vietnam-era vets, Smith decided that it was time to take action. To Smith and his friends, there was only one way to ensure that the vets would get the undivided attention of the VA leader they decided to take him hostage. We walked in the office and nailed the door shut. We had sea rations, we had porta potties, we had briefing papers, and we said, we're having a teach-in. We said, we're not going to hurt you, but we heard what you said, and you are going to get an education. They showered Radebush with pages of data. 
So after about three hours, they took battering rams and they burst through the doors and arrested us, took us off to jail. And I was convicted and sentenced to a year in jail for destruction of government property. Routabush came and testified that we were honorable people, that, that we were adamant about veterans. Smith was let out of jail after a month and returned to New York City, where High Shatton had come up with a plan. Shatton had decided that they needed to get the concept of post-Vietnam syndrome included in the Bible of the psychiatric profession, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. This plan, according to Oklahoma University professor Wilbur Scott, was a brilliant political move. If you get it in the manual in one fell swoop, that's the end of the discussion, <laughs> you know. Um, you see what I mean? You don't have to do it case by case after that. You don't have to do it institution by institution, block by block. It's in the manual. The director and all-around gatekeeper of the manual was a man named Robert Spitzer. So Shatton got John Talbot, a well-respected psychiatrist and friend of Spitzer's, to set up a meeting. In the spring of 1974, Spitzer sat down to a New York lunch with Shatton and Smith. We go in to see Bob, and Bob starts off saying, if we recognize this, do you know what's going to cost the government? And Hi started talking. I said, Hi, just hang on a second. I said, Bob, you don't even want to have this discussion with Lifton, Shatton, and me on the op-ed page of the New York Times. If the American Psychiatric Association came out and said schizophrenia doesn't exist because it's going to cost too much money, Talbot would string you up from a lamppost. It's the same thing with this. I know that's the VA's argument. That has nothing to do with dsm 3 You are not responsible for the federal budget. Wilbur Scott. Spitzer's response to that meeting was, um, well, we need data. We need the evidence. We'll decide on the basis of data and evidence. To weigh the evidence, Spitzer appointed an actual DSM-PTSD committee. In making their decision, the group considered not only the research provided by the vets, but also trauma studies in a variety of areas, rape, the Holocaust, natural disasters, which is how post-Vietnam syndrome got a new name, Jack Smith. Forget post-Vietnam syndrome. Suddenly, because of these, we're dealing with post-traumatic syndrome. It was official. When the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual was finally published in 1980, it included post-traumatic stress disorder, a new disease that applied not only to vets, but to all survivors of major trauma, including events like natural disasters and terrorist incidents. The definition included many of the symptoms that Smith and company saw in their group, nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty sleeping, anger, a definition the Veterans Administration simply could not ignore. You had a tablet. It was like the Ten Commandments. It was writ. It's here. Bob Spitzer says this exists. After the DSM's publication, VA opposition quickly died away. Legislation was passed to set up a network of vet centers, in part dedicated to providing PTSD services to Vietnam vets. But there were still pockets of resistance, and Jack Smith discovered one when he tried to become a psychologist. He went to graduate school to get his Ph.D., but the department chair refused to accept his dissertation proposal for a PTSD study. He told Jack the disorder didn't exist. You have managed to hoodwink the American Psychiatric Association, but we're scientists in psychology, and there is no data to support it, and you are not about to create any. So you'll either run rats like every other psychologist or go on your way. 
Today, Smith works in construction. Meanwhile, the career of post-traumatic stress disorder as a psychiatric concept has thrived. Although the concept is only 23 years old, it's one of the most widely used entries in the DSM. In fact, many people see the disorder as too popular. Any forensic psychiatrist will tell you that it's one of the most commonly fake diagnoses in the court system. But despite these criticisms of overuse, people like Kevin Knight, the Gulf War veteran, have clearly benefited from a standardized definition. Knight's adapted to the disease, but continues to be haunted by the image he saw that day in 1991, a child's foot lying alone in the desert sand. I've been told that that, that image will never leave me, but the um, through the uh, therapy that I'm, I've gone to, I don't think about it as much as I used to. Post-traumatic stress disorder by Elise Spiegel. Well, now we're going to take a breather from the trauma and the stress with a turn in a completely different direction. Joe Frank. Joe Frank is a 25-year veteran of the public airwaves and was the recipient of the 2003 Third Coast International Audio Festival's Lifetime Achievement Award. If, by any chance, you've never heard his work, it is very funny, often very dark, and absolutely one of a kind. And how often do you get to hear public radio making fun of public radio? Not often enough, I say. But for the next few minutes, you will. And here is the man for the job, Joe Frank and his short work called Sweepstakes Winner. Hello. Hi, I'm looking for Jenny. This is Jenny. Hi, Jenny. It's Matt Holzman calling from KCRW. Oh, hello. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for supporting KCRW. Thank you. I saw that you became an angel. You gave us a dollar a day. Yes. And uh, you took 3,500 frequent flyer miles on American Airlines? Yes. Is your premium. You're planning on going somewhere? Mm, yes. <laughs> but you're a first-time subscriber. I, I am. You've been listening for a while? Uh-huh. But you finally be decided to take the plunge and become yeah. a member. <laughs> what are the programs that you listen to the most? Oh, I love This American Life. And um, Selected Shorts. Oh, um, I have another call. Could you just hold on just for a minute? Yeah. Okay. Hello? Jenny? Yes? Uh... I'm sorry. You know... It's Matt Holzman from KCRW. Uh-huh. Um, you know what? It sounds like a bad time. Maybe I'll call back in a bit. What do you want? Is, is this a, 
It's about her sister. No, no, no. Jenny subscribed to KCRW, and she won our Angel Sweepstakes to Hawaii. She won five nights at the Kapalua Bay Hotel, including an ocean view room and a complimentary scuba class, and Hoff, uh, Hoffman Travel is going to fly you both there. This is outrageous. How dare you call at a time like this? is absolutely obscene. We have, we have a tragedy in this family at this moment. Do you understand that? Yes, I'm... I... My sister-in-law has died. She's died, and there's a lot of confusion. I'm so sorry. I can't possibly deal with this kind of thing. Would you just shut up for a minute, please? Would you just put a sock in it, for God's sake? I'm dealing with somebody on the phone. We want a trip. I'm trying to work it out. After the funeral, maybe we'll go. Would, Would you shut up? I'm on the phone, for God's sake. You whiny get. Hey, hold on. Just hold on one second. Just hold on one second. I'm telling you. I'm getting. Just stop. Shut up. You shut up. You shut up. I told you to shut up. We want a trip somewhere, for God's sake. Are you still there? Yeah. Are you still there? Yes. Will you just hold on a minute, will you please? Yeah. You just hang on the line. Hey, listen to me. She was half gone in the first place. The whole family's half gone. I'll just, would you just give me one minute, please? Just one minute. Calm down. You're going to be all right. Yeah. Sir? Yeah. Is Jenny an employee of KCRW or no, Santa Monica no, no, College no. or or the Kapalua Bay Hotel or Hoffman Travel? No, no, not at all. Not at all. And, not at all. and can we use some portion of this conversation on the air? I can't hear you. Can we use some portion of this conversation? Hey, would you just take it down and go back in the bathroom, for God's sake? I'm trying to get some info. I'm sorry. Please, excuse me. What would you say? Can we use some portion of this conversation on the air? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, congratulations. Hey, thanks a lot. What do, uh, hey, can I ask you something? Sure. What, what do you, I mean, is there any kind of rerouting or rebooking this flight, you know, because we got to go out to the Midwest? Well, is that possible? Yeah, well, you can talk to the people at Hoffman Travel, and they might be able to help you out. All right, okay, all right. You, great. Uh, hold on just one. Hey, hey, would you please shut up? No! I told you a thousand times. I don't care about it. I never like her anyway. She makes me sick. You're making me sick. I'm talking to this guy. We're going on. My God, we're going on a trip. We're going on a vacation. Joe Frank's sweepstakes winner. If you like this piece, you're in luck. WBEZ has just started airing Joe Frank in his show aptly named Joe Frank every Sunday night from 11 p.m. till midnight here on Chicago Public Radio. Only five more hours to go. You can do it. And now, hang on to your hats as we go from the ridiculous to the even more ridiculous. At the start of the show, we played you this piece of tape and asked you to guess who this woman could be talking about. Well, now we're going to let the cat out of the bag. All puns intended. This is Cherry Pop's face in a ring, in a pinky ring. This is Cherry Pop's face. It has cognac diamonds in it. Then I have, oh, I have another big around a medallion of my Mercedes car, and Cherry Pop is in the middle. Welcome to the world of Vi and Yui Vanek and their beloved prize-winning red Persian cat, Cherry Pop. Plus, I have Cherry Pop glasses. Had a made-up special in California. Yes, her face, both sides. Beautiful, yeah. Vi and Yui were high school sweethearts. He became a millionaire, and Cherry Pop, well, let's just say we should all live so well. When I spoke with the Vanicks, 
Cherry Pop had her own Rolls Royce, a birthday party on a 170-foot yacht for 150 of her closest friends, and a menu of rabbit, venison, and duck. Oh, but wait, that's not all. Even had motorhomes he bought for the cats. Two beautiful brand-new motorhomes, all done in burnt orange velvet. That was a one. Brand new, remember that, Yui? Oh, but But then he bought another one, and Cherry Pop didn't like it. (laughs) She was very restless, restless and she was trying to tell him or something. So he says, hey, I'm I'm getting rid of this. That's it. That went down the drain. (laughs) I think you get the picture. But I don't want you to think that the Vanicks are single-minded to the exclusion of everything else. Well, they travel quite a bit, see shows. In fact, there's one show they've seen over a dozen times. Can you guess? Cats. Touch me. That's our show for tonight. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering help. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. ReSound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Good night.